Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that flossing and brushing your teeth may protect against heart disease. People with periodontitis have a much higher risk of heart disease possibly due to inflammation caused by the disease itself. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words, What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's interview is with Dr. William Davis, a practicing cardiologist, author, blogger, and creator of the Track Your Plaque program. He comes on Upgraded Self Radio to talk about his latest book, Wheat Belly, and how avoiding wheat and other grains helps reduce your risk of heart disease. After that, we have our listener Q&A, where we discuss how to take care of your butter, the different forms of supplemental glutathione, the safety of five-hour energy drinks, whether caffeine has toxins or not, the effect of coffee on vivants, studies to support grounding or earthing, and convincing your wife that butter isn't deadly. We close with our biohack report, where you will hear a brief summary of three new pieces of research that this time talk about living longer by taking a chill pill, enhancing performance with a blend of supplements, and preventing colon problems with butyrate and vitamin D. 
Army, what biohacks have you been working on this week? I've been doing some research on somatic cell nuclear transfer therapy, or SCNT. And this works by taking some of your cells and removing their nuclei. Then, a donor egg from a female has the nucleus removed, and the nucleus from one of your cells is inserted into the cytoplasm of the egg. The cell is given an electrical shock or treated with some chemicals, and then it begins to replicate. And this one cell becomes a small group of cells called a blastocyst. It's basically a small blob of stem cells. Then, these stem cells can be coaxed into becoming different tissues. So, let's say I had a heart attack, and I lost a lot of heart cells. We could take some cells out of me, form them into a blastocyst, and then have them injected back into my heart. And they've actually done studies showing that you can regenerate almost any tissue in your body with this somatic cell nuclear transfer. I've actually been learning about this from Aubrey de Grey's book, Ending Aging, which I highly recommend. And this is basically a form of cloning, and it has huge implications for all sorts of diseases from strokes, heart disease, and just general aging. Aubrey's an awesome guy. I really, really like his work. Uh, he's spoken at the Silicon Valley Health Institute, and I've uh, had a chance to have meals with him a few times. Very cool, very knowledgeable guy. I also highly recommend his book. Definitely. What have you been up to? I've been looking at meat quality. I just ordered, or I, should say, I just took delivery of 420 pounds of grass-fed meat. Basically, I bought half of a cow. Grass-fed, grass-finished, of course. But what I ended up doing is asking the butcher to not age the meat any more than was necessary to allow the bleeding. So within two days of being slaughtered, I had the cow fully butchered and frozen, which produces the very freshest meat you can possibly get. The cattle rancher said, oh, your meat's going to be very tough. And you know what? He was wrong. This is some of the best grass-fed meat I've had. The fat is nice and yellow. Meat tastes really good, and it's actually been quite delicious so far. We've had lots of different cuts. So I think that this is the optimal way of producing meat. You get your meat as fresh as you can, you freeze it so it doesn't have any chance of decomposition, and you actually get a fresher, nicer steak that way. And if the cow was well-treated and it's the right species of cow and it ate the right kind of grass, it shouldn't be that stringy. I would imagine you might be able to get it cheaper that way too, since aging is kind of a pain for the butcher and it increases their production time. It's interesting. They charge the same amount either way, but what I did get is I got more weight. When you 21-day dry age meat, you can lose 20% of the weight of the cow between trimming and moisture loss. So he was expecting mid-300s, maybe 370, and I got 420 pounds. And I paid uh, $3.50 a pound. Not that much money for, I mean, amazingly good stuff. Indeed. I just bought like 230 pounds, and it cost me way more than I'm going to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, now we're going to have our exclusive interview with William Davis, where we talk about more benefits of grass-fed meat and avoiding non-grass-fed things. William Davis, MD, is a preventative cardiologist whose unique approach to diet allows him to advocate reversal, not just prevention, of heart disease. He's the founder of the Track Your Plaque program and the author of Wheat Belly, Lose the Wheat, Lose the Weight. He lives and practices cardiology in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. After trying to find a way to help his patients avoid heart disease, Dr. Davis decided to make some unique nutritional interventions that defy conventional wisdom. 
He comes here on Upgraded Self Radio today to talk about those interventions and how you can avoid heart disease by changing your diet. Dr. Davis, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dave. Glad to be here. Let's get right into this. You're a physician, and your recommendations don't really seem like you're telling us to be avoiding saturated fat and cholesterol like many modern-day cardiologists. Can you sort of tell us how you got to be that way and sort of the history of your program, maybe give us the very short summary of what your recommendations are? Sure, Dave. I did that same thing many years ago. That is, followed this notion of cutting fat, cutting cholesterol, and eating plenty of healthy whole grains. I did that personally as well as advising patients to do that. 20 years ago, I got very serious about a low-fat diet full of healthy whole grains, fruits, and vegetables, and I became diabetic. This was at a time when I was jogging three to five miles a day. I was on faculty at Case Western uh, University in Cleveland, jogging three to five miles a day. My blood sugar was running in the 160 range. So I had to learn the hard way, Dave, that this was silly advice. I saw this play out in patients as well because I advised them to follow a low-fat diet, cut their saturated fat sharply, cut their consumption of animal proteins and oils, and eat plenty of healthy whole grains and fruits and vegetables. While there's an initial what I call honeymoon effect, there are people who do better at first. Most, the majority, do not do better long-term. You exaggerate diabetic potential. You increase the number one cause for heart disease today, which is small LDL particles. And so I think it's become clear to many of us, not just me, but many of us, that the whole notion of cut your fat, cut your cholesterol, eat more healthy whole grains, not only fails to protect you from heart disease, but causes heart disease along with a whole collection of metabolic distortions like diabetes. That would certainly match my own experience. When I weighed 300 pounds, I did 45 minutes of cardio and 45 minutes of weights six days a week, and I ate a low-fat diet, and I just kept getting fatter and sicker. It's amazing how that works. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's impressive. So what are the big differences in your recommendations for nutrition versus what most doctors would say? Well, if there's one thing people do to regain health, I believe it is eliminate wheat. And let me clarify, eliminate this thing being sold to us called wheat. Because I would challenge the right that the geneticists and people of agriculture have to even call it wheat. When something has drifted so far away genetically from its origins, at what point do we say this is no longer anything like the original plant? So modern wheat is a two-foot-tall, high-yield strain generated by geneticists in the 70s. This thing is completely different than the wheat of, say, 1960. It's certainly a far cry different from the wheat, say, of the Bible or medieval ages or the original wheat that was collected by humans as hunter-gatherers when they first converted to incorporating grains in the diet. But people say, for instance, I have to eat bread because it's in the Bible. It is in the Bible. In fact, the Bible's filled with mention of wheat and bread. But that's something entirely different from the stuff that you and I are sold today genetically, biochemically, and its effects on humans. So this thing was changed in the 70s for increased yield with no qualms, no questions raised about its suitability for human consumption. So this thing has changed its relationship with us, and I think it has become a very destructive plant. So if there's one thing people do, it is not follow conventional advice to cut your fat and eat more healthy whole grains, but eat the fat and cut out the grains. Exact, the precise opposite, Dave, of what we're being told. Now, there's more to diet than just eliminating wheat. But if you eliminate that one thing, you will see health transformations 
weight loss, clarity of thinking, better sleep, better mood, uh, acid reflux disappears, multiple gastrointestinal problems go away, joint pains go away, a whole long list of conditions reverse. There is more, of course. We shouldn't be wheat-free but eat jelly beans and ice cream. We shouldn't overconsume <laughs> junk carbohydrates. We have to watch out for high fructose corn syrup and other sources of fructose. We have to be careful of overconsumption of polyunsaturates, little acid sources of vegetable oils. So there's more to diet, of course, than cutting out wheat. But I will tell you, cutting out wheat fixes, I think, 90% of the problems of most people's diets. Wow. I could not agree more. And every time I hear that, you know, heart healthy whole grains, and I see the little heart symbol on a box of Cheerios, I think that gives me more indigestion than I used to get from eating wheat. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I see so many friends and people I care about who think, I'll just have a little bit of wheat. Just, you know, I only have one piece of bread a day, and they don't understand that it's affecting them almost like a pharmaceutical would. Absolutely. That's a, that's a perfect parallel. This thing is not a food, it has effects like drugs. Or more like poisons, I should say. Poison would be the right word. That is exactly true. Dr. Davis, but, is it possible to treat most diseases without at least some nutritional changes? Because it seems like many doctors, as we were talking about, want to focus mainly on pharmaceuticals or other forms of intervention without ever making dietary changes. You know, Army, I think we spend, I'm speaking generally in healthcare, I think lots of money, lots of time, lots of aggravation, lots of agony are expended treating diet problems. In other words, I think we treat tons of hypertension, high cholesterol, arthritis, leg edema, water retention, acid reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory diseases, and what we really are treating is diet. I think we are treating specifically wheat consumption, consumption of this thing called modern wheat, as well as other problems in diet. So I think if my colleagues embraced better nutrition, and dispensing advice and better nutrition, I think we'd slash the number of people with various conditions, I would say, easily by half. It's a lot. It's not all diseases, of course. Sometimes you're in a car accident, you stumble down the stairs. There are things that are beyond our control and have nothing to do with nutrition, of course, and affect health. But I think many of the chronic conditions we're exposed to are nothing more than expressions of bad choices in diet. So, I see this happen every day, and this is how I kind of stumbled on this whole thing of taking wheat out of the diet. I asked people to take wheat out of the diet because I was very concerned about high blood sugars. My practice is preventive cardiology now, even though I was trained to do so-called cardiac interventions, that is stents and angioplasty and laser and all that kind of stuff. I don't do that anymore because there's no need for it. There's virtually no need in people who follow this diet. As compared to the people who continue to eat a standard American diet and have heart attacks, heart failure, and all the other problems. So I think diet is extremely powerful. The problem is the conventional notions of diet, that is cut your fat, eat more healthy whole grains, cause these diseases. And so it's no surprise that we have a crisis of healthcare costs. Costs continue to escalate no matter what happens. They slash costs, they negotiate contracts, all kinds of stuff like that. And yet costs continue to rise to a great degree because Americans continue to get sick. And a lot of it is from diet. I'm convinced of this. Your observations make a lot of sense. I recently moved to Canada. I live outside of Victoria, British Columbia, and I moved mostly on the western half of the U.S. And there's a shocking difference in the rate of obesity when I leave the U.S. and I travel internationally quite a bit. I really do think that we have even worse food in the U.S. than we do in other countries that are still big wheat consumers. 
So what makes wheat in particular so bad? Like, let's get into a little bit of the chemistry. The people listening to this will, will be interested in understanding what are all the bad building blocks of wheat? One of the most important features of wheat is its capacity to raise blood sugar. It's shocking that we're told to eat more of this food, healthy whole grains, that raises blood sugar higher than nearly all other foods. So if we were to compare the blood sugar raising potential, say, of two slices of whole wheat bread, blood sugar goes higher than consuming six teaspoons of table sugar, higher than a Snickers bar. So we are, in effect, told to eat this very high glycemic index food that raises blood sugar very high. High blood sugar does not occur in isolation. It triggers high blood insulin. And repetitive levels of high blood insulin, high blood sugar, let's say from a breakfast of English muffins and a lunch of turkey breast on two slices of whole wheat bread and a dinner of wheat pasta, repetitive high blood sugar with high blood insulin causes insulin resistance. And that causes accumulation of visceral fat, deep fat in the tummy. It shows up as love handles and a of course, what I call a wheat belly, that's very inflammatory fat. So that sets up this cascade that leads you to diabetes, heart disease, high cholesterol, cancer. So the amylopectin A carbohydrate unique to wheat is responsible for raising blood sugar to very high levels. Now, that occurs in about a two-hour cycle. So a breakfast, say, of shredded wheat at 7 a.m. is followed inevitably by hunger at 9 a.m. That's when people are looking for their next snack. They'll reach for low-fat pretzels or low-fat whole wheat crackers, and they start the whole cascade over again. So wheat consumption is a two-hour cycle of hunger. There's another problem with wheat that is very important from a hunger and weight standpoint, and that's the gliadin protein. Gliadin is a protein unique to wheat that acts like an opiate. It's degraded to a group of compounds, a group of polypeptides called exorphins, that is exogenous morphine-like compounds that cause appetite stimulation. So people who consume wheat take in, on average, 400 calories more per day. People who say goodbye to all things wheat drop their calorie consumption by 400 calories per day. And this is even if there's no restriction on calories. I wouldn't say this, but if I said to someone, cut out all the wheat, and I don't care what you eat. You go ahead and eat all the jelly beans and ice cream you want, just so long as there's no wheat. Calorie consumption goes down, on average, 400 calories per day. So when you think about it, wheat is this perfectly crafted thing to cause obesity. It increases appetite. It increases blood sugar, and thereby leading to visceral fat accumulation. It causes a two-hour predictable cycle of hunger. It is perfect. Now, there's also preliminary observations in an animal model that the lectin – there's a protein in wheat called lectins or wheat germagglutin. These are protective proteins in plants. has the unique potential to block the leptin receptor. Leptin, of course, is the hormone of satiety. If I eat a lot, my leptin levels go up to tell me to stop eating because I don't need any more. Well, the lectin of wheat has been shown to bind to the leptin receptor, at least in this animal model. If that proves true, wheat consumption equals obesity. So we have this thing perfectly crafted to cause obesity. That is incredible research, and that's something I haven't come across yet. Army, have you seen that anywhere? I actually did see that. Rob Wolf tweeted it out several months ago, and it oh uh, wow yeah, it found that wheat germ gluten caused leptin resistance and thus insulin resistance. That is an amazing piece of research I hadn't heard. And we also know that lectin can pass through the GI tract, and the lectin there, I think, if I remember right, likes N-acetyl-D-glucosamine, which happens to be something that lines your joints. 
So that's, that's one of the things that can lead to arthritis in people who have that problem. There's another question I have for you, Dr. Davis, and I apologize I didn't send this to you ahead of time, but I have a pretty big stack of thinking here, and it's actually one of the lectures on the site about mycotoxins. Mycotoxins are shown in animals to cause atherosclerotic lesions, and we have a huge problem with very aggressive strains of fusarium mold that grows on wheat and creates things like xeralanone and trichothecenes and a couple other mycotoxins. Have you ever seen any research or come across anything looking at these parts per million type of toxins that are in wheat that may be influencing any of the factors here? No, Dave. That's an entirely new argument to me. That, that's fascinating, though. I'm impressed that the deeper we dig, the worse this thing gets. But that's an issue I was not aware of. I'll send you some info afterwards. It varies by region. It turns out Europe has different ones than the U.S., but I am of the opinion after you know many years of working with anti-aging researcher types in the nonprofit world that a very significant portion of heart disease is at least heavily influenced by mycotoxins in the environment and in the diet. But that's probably it's outside of our scope today. But when you're building your mental list of reasons to not eat wheat, certainly the fact that a huge amount of grain is contaminated with this stuff mm. and during the production cycle it probably plays a role in health because these are such broad-spectrum toxins and fusarium hits three different toxin pathways. It's a thought. Interesting. So, uh, Army, I think you had another question coming up, right? Right. Dr. Davis, one of the things that a lot of people will say is that they're eating lots of wheat and they feel fine. They say, oh, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to. I feel great. Are there any problems that might still be accumulating in someone's body, even if they feel fine on a high wheat diet or even a moderate wheat diet? Yeah. As you know, the majority of people do not feel fine, of course. That is, people who remove wheat, the majority will experience a transformation in the way they feel. They'll have more energy. They'll be less moody. Sleep will be deeper. All the common problems associated with wheat, such as hand pain, hand swelling pain goes away, acid reflux goes away. So the majority of people do feel better, perceptibly better. But you're exactly right. There's a number of people who say, I took wheat out of the diet. Yeah, so I lost five pounds, but I don't really feel that different. What they're not aware of, though, are all the metabolic transformations that occur beneath the surface. So blood sugar drops. That long-term measure of blood sugar, hemoglobin A1c, that shows your blood sugar from the last 60 days, that drops. Inflammatory measures like C-reactive protein and IL-6 drop. Blood pressure drops. Absorption of nutrients improves, like B12 and other B vitamins and magnesium and zinc. So you might not be aware of it. At least some people might not be aware of the improvements in health, but there are very clear-cut metabolic improvements that occur in someone who goes wheat-free, whether they perceive it or not. That's an excellent point. And one of the populations that I think is told to eat more wheat than just about anybody are athletes. I'm a triathlete myself. We were talking about this earlier. And when you ask any coach or look at almost any book on athletics, they tell you to eat a lot of high-carb, whole wheat, whole grain products. And triathletes, you could call them bagel-tarians. And <laughs> yeah, that's what I love to call them. And, or carboholics, that's a good one too. And a lot of athletes think they can burn off these horrible foods. But do you think these wheat products might actually be even more harmful for somebody who's putting their body under that kind of stress than a sedentary individual? I think it is bad all around. You know, this notion of carb loading before a race is especially destructive. You're feeding yourself, you know, that practice of having a whole huge portion of pasta the night before. 
if you were to, even in a very slender fit person, you will have metabolic disasters that develop. For instance, eating that way, you trigger the formation of small LDL particles, the number one cause for heart disease in the U.S., by the way. So you eat that big, big plate of pasta the night before your race. You flood your bloodstream with the particles that cause the formation of small LDL. And small LDL is unique, Army. They last for a week. Unlike large LDL particles triggered by fat consumption that last 24 to 48 hours, that pasta triggers formation of small LDL that lasts a week. So even a once-a-week indulgence in carbohydrates because you, you load up with pasta and then maybe you had a couple of energy bars, you were triggered, for instance, this small LDL pattern all the time. You're, you're living with it. That's how you get heart disease. That's how you get diabetes. And by the way, the process of glycation is provoked also. That is high blood glucose that comes from carb loading causes glycation, glucose modification of proteins. So if I have a high blood glucose, say, after my pasta of 140, which is very typical, even in a slender fit person, I'm glycating like mad. And I glycate the proteins in the lenses of my eyes. I'm accelerating the formation of cataracts. I can glycate the cartilage cells and cartilage proteins in my joints, and that makes cartilage brittle over time. I get brittle cartilage followed by joint erosion and arthritis. So these practices are not benign. Carb loading, taking lots of carbohydrates in the midst of training can be, if overdone, a very destructive process. Not to mention the inflammatory effects generated by wheat consumption, perhaps through lectins. So I cringe when I see the athletes eating the wheat because they are, in effect, destroying their joints. It's really interesting you mentioned that effect. I was diagnosed with arthritis in my knees when I was 14, and I had pretty much constant joint pain up through my mid-20s until I, I finally figured out that uh, wheat was really breaking my cognitive function as well as you know, other stress things. I had a lot of stuff going on. But the joint pain is very noticeable even today if I did, say, accidentally eat wheat, which may happen once a year. I do feel it in my joints. I, that pathway of inflammation is, is definitely there, at least from personal experience. Isn't that something? So how many people subject themselves to Celebrex, to uh, Advil, to constant pain? I've seen people who were reliant on wheelchairs, walkers, canes, or just grinned and bared it and, and hoppled around. I've seen these people transform within days to weeks of going wheat-free. I've seen people go from hobbling to jogging. Uh, I've seen this so many times with experiences just like yours. So this thing causes joint pain, joint inflammation, but can also actually physically destroy your joints as well. It's one of those things, though, I think because of the opiates, even with the Bulletproof Diet where we, we sort of lay things out really matter-of-factly and put grains as bad, as bad on the evil side as we can, I talk to people every day who, I, I just couldn't do it, I just have a little bit, and... The difference between those people and someone who really doesn't maybe eat the right fats as often but just skips gluten, you can see it. Like it's very noticeable. Absolutely. You know, you can see it on the face. It's very typical. This is more obvious in females, I find, for reasons I don't understand. But a woman will show up and I meet her for the first time. She's eating what she thinks is a good diet full of lots of healthy whole grains. And she's got a round, puffy face. She's got redness on her cheeks. She's got a little red, flaky rash along the sides of her nose and big bags under her eyes. It's very typical. Yes. She goes... Yeah, wheat-free, and that all goes away. They have this glow. The skin becomes tighter. That red rash around the nose and on the cheeks goes away. The bags disappear. 
you know, if that happens, of course, on the face, you're going to wonder what's happening internally because the skin, of course, is just the surface reflection of many, many internal processes. But women love to hear that because they all want to look better. And you can put on all the makeup you want, but if there's internal turmoil from consumption of modern wheat, that you have to get rid of wheat to gain control over. Dr. Davis, do you ever consume wheat of any form? We've talked about how the modern wheat is a little different than the older wheat. Do you ever think that the modern wheat might be, or the older wheat might have been a safer form? Well, I personally don't eat any wheat at all, Army, because I have the same situation like Dave. If I have wheat, I get quite sick. I don't get joint pains. I get gastrointestinal distress for about 48 hours. I can't think straight. I can't understand things when I read. I feel awful. I uh, have this feeling of kind of doom, of depression. Uh, <laughs> this lasts about 48 hours, and so it's, it's just not worth it. Now, you raise an important issue. If the big problem here is what the geneticists did to wheat in the 60s and 70s, we better off going back to the wheat, say, of 1950 that our moms had. Or how about the wheat of the 19th century, like red fife, which is a very popular form of wheat in uh, Canada and the U.S.? In the 19th century? Or how about Kamut or Spelt that was popular in the Middle Ages and prior to that? Or even Emmer, which was the wheat of the Bible? Or Einkorn, the great granddaddy of all wheat that grew wild in the Middle East? I think every step of the way we go back, wheat becomes a more benign plant. But it never becomes entirely benign. There's a common flaw in logic that nutritionists apply all the time. And that is if you take something bad for you, in this case, white enriched flour, and replace it with something less bad for you, whole grains, and there's an apparent health benefit. And there is. There is less colon cancer, heart disease, and diabetes when you do that. Well, then a whole bunch of the less bad thing is good for you. You'll see this flawed logic applied over and over and over in nutrition. So if I apply it to cigarettes, if I replace something unhealthy like unfiltered teratin cigarettes with something less unhealthy, filtered Salem's, by the logic used by nutritionists, we should smoke lots of Salem's. And so we got to be careful with this. <laughs> if we take something unhealthy, modern wheat changed by the geneticists, and replace it, say, with something less unhealthy, in this case maybe the wheat of 1950, it's better, but is it good? I don't think it is. So I think it still has problems. We also know that when humans first incorporated grains as einkorn, there was a downturn in health. There's evidence in the fossil record and the remains of people who've passed that there was more cavities, dental caries, more bone diseases, and perhaps more vascular disease. Some have argued also there was a drop in stature and height. So humans did react to the notion of incorporating grains. So I think grains have been a problem. But they've become a really big problem with modern wheat. I have to thank you for saying that for our listeners to hear. I see something that really just makes me sad. I see parents with obese kids going into the store and buying grain-based, gluten-free products, things that maybe have spelt, which actually has very similar chemicals in it. And they're thinking that they're buying something healthy. And what they're doing, if normal, modern, genetically modified wheat is a 10 out of 10 on the scale of bad, they're switching to something that's 6 out of 10, but their kids are still misbehaving and the kids are still puffy and they're having the cognitive problems. And just the quality of life for both the kids and the family 
it goes down because there are behavioral problems and health problems that become lifelong issues when you feed this to people. So the way you laid that out was perfect. That Yeah, they're better, but they're still not good. And that message, I think, is really important for people who want to outperform at every level. Absolutely, Dave. You raise another great issue, and that is how about gluten-free foods then? Well, you and I know that every time we rely on the food industry to come to our rescue, they're going to botch it up. <laughs> and so what the gluten-free industry has done is they don't use wheat, of course, because it contains the protein gluten. And instead, they rely on cornstarch, rice starch, potato starch, and tapioca starch. Well, these dried pulverized starches are awful. They raise blood sugar higher than even wheat. Few things can raise blood sugar higher than wheat, but cornstarch, rice starch, tapioca starch, potato starch, and gluten-free foods do, and they raise it sky high. If you look this up in the tables of glycemic index, you'll see, for instance, that gluten-free foods have glycemic indexes of 90, 95, 98, incredibly high. It's not uncommon to have a blood sugar go from 100 to 250 after two slices of whole grain, multi-grain, gluten-free bread. So gluten-free foods, at least as they're currently conceived, are very destructive. That's one of the reasons why in the Wheat Belly book, as well as in the uh, blog that accompanies the book, the Wheat Belly blog, I post recipes for ways to recreate common foods like breads, muffins, cookies, and cheesecake without those gluten-free ingredients, without wheat, of course, but using other things, using such things as ground almonds and coconut flour. And you can have, by the way, wonderful cheesecake or muffins or cookies, in addition to the whole foods we all should be eating, like olive oil and olives and meats and eggs and cheese and avocados. But you can also have those occasional indulgences, but you should not be buying them from the companies that claim their products are gluten-free. We are in 100% agreement on that point, which is awesome given your extensive medical background and the fact that you're treating people. I think one of my favorite recipes is for uh, bulletproof cupcakes, which are, you know, entirely <laughs> free of the bad starches and, you know, they're chocolatey and puffy. And, you know, so I, I try and post recipes and I've found over the years you can recreate just about any food you want other than a croissant. I, I don't believe you can make a healthy croissant that is <laughs> right. gluten-free and free of all the fake other stuff that goes out there. <laughs> That's a tough one. Now, I'm going to ask you about something where it's a little bit out there, but it's something that's actually been very transformative for me. And this is something called Bulletproof Coffee. It's a recipe that I invented after I went to Tibet and hung out with some monks who told me how good yak butter tea was. And I came back and modified it. So in a typical morning, my breakfast is a mixture of MCT oil and grass-fed butter blended with mycotoxin-free coffee. When I do that, and I might have three, four tablespoons of this. I'm satisfied for about eight hours, but I have this amazing stable level energy. And my markers for cardiac risk, which I track with an anti-aging physician and have for years, are good. My triglycerides are about 130. My HDL is around 87. Uh, off the top of my head, I'd, I'd have to pull up my spreadsheets to find all the numbers. What's your take? I, I know you have concerns with butter. What's your take on this practice? Am I going to die young, or is this maybe a way to get ketosis and mTOR levels optimized? I think we have to fight our battles. We have to pick and choose our battles in health and nutrition. So I think there's some battles worth fighting. I think there's some battles not worth fighting. So I think uh, above all else, elimination of wheat, I think we all agree, is, is the number one battle to fight. Yes. Uh, number two would be avoiding junk carbohydrates, whether it's gluten-free, jelly beans, or something filled with fructose or agave. 
we rid ourselves of all those junk carbohydrates. I don't think we have to be ketotic to be healthy. Ketosis, it can be beneficial, but I don't think we have to be ketotic all the time. It's bad for you, I would say, to be ketotic all the time. I certainly wouldn't want to be. I go in and out. It is uncomfortable. And there's lots of things in nutrition, we, little battles, I think, that are not worth fighting. For instance, some people get worked up about the notion of cruciferous vegetables being so-called goitrogens, that is, they block thyroid function. But, you know, that's probably such a trivial effect. So I think we have to pick and choose our battles. The whole butter issue, there's two issues to be aware of that I'm sure you know about. One is the so-called insulinotropic action of dairy. That is not the fat. There's nothing wrong with the fat in dairy and never has been. There's something peculiar about the proteins in the product of bovine mammary glands. And that is they trigger human pancreases to overproduce insulin. And so most of us have been so overexposed to carbohydrates that we have essentially damaged pancreases. And that's why so many people have rapidly deteriorating prediabetes and diabetes because they have such overworked pancreases and they've destroyed so many beta cells that produce insulin. So the insulinotropic action of dairy makes that situation worse. But it's not so bad that I think we should eliminate dairy. That's why I say I think we have to pick and choose our battles. I know I enjoy cheese, and I accept that it might not be absolutely perfect. I try to consume it with other foods so that that excess insulin effect is taken up by other foods. There's also this whole notion of advanced glycation end products or more properly lipoxidation products that come from butter. So that's an issue with butter specifically also. What I tell my patients and what I say in this diet is have dairy, just don't allow it to dominate a meal or dominate your life. I would actually support that advice. The only type of dairy that I consider to be useful on the Bulletproof diet would be butter or ghee in order to try and reduce those proteins as much as possible for the same reasons you're talking about there. Although I would say that at least for me, the breakfast when I have Bulletproof coffee is dominated by almost all milk fat. But I think overall, when people eliminate most of the protein-consuming dairy, they seem to do better. Even you mentioned the skin from wheat. I noticed changes, especially around pimples, when people cut out the wheat proteins. And that seems like another one of those inflammatory causes uh, that is related to the gluteomorphins that come from the breakdown of gluten. You know, we have caseomorphins that break down from, from dairy. What about let's say, legumes and other polyunsaturated fats. In your thinking, are these good, bad? How much attention should we pay to these things? I think this is another instance, Dave, where I, I know that some people have concerns about the phytates and some of the anti-nutritional effects of the legumes. Uh, I know that some people have concerns about the linoleic acid triggering of eicosanoid pathways. I think with the beans and legumes in general, it's probably a small effect. If there's anything I'm worried about in legumes, it's provocation of blood sugar. So if I eat a lot of kidney beans, say, or black beans or red beans, I will have a very high blood sugar if I consume more than a small quantity. So I am concerned about that, but I'm not that concerned about phytates and other anti-nutritional effects because I don't really think that they're of practical concern, that perhaps that might not hold true in, say, a vegan or vegetarian who relies on beans to a very high degree. Maybe they might have a problem. But I think in practical life, those of us who eat whole foods and rely on such things as vegetables and meats and eggs and cheese and nuts, that the anti-nutritional effects of legumes are probably trivial to none. The polyunsaturates, you know, it's unclear to me in the literature whether polyunsaturates are in and of themselves harmful 
or whether they're simply a marker for a lack of omega-3 fatty acids. I think there is harm, but I think it probably derives at uh, when you overconsume the polyunsaturates. So what I do, until we have better information, what I tell people is try not to use, of course, vegetable oil, corn oil, safflower, sunflower, uh, cottonseed, and soy. Use other oils. Use such things as uh, extra virgin olive oil, coconut oil. We use a lot of coconut oil, avocado, macadamia, flaxseed, uh, rich in linolenic acid. So uh, until we have clarification, I just ask people not to overconsume. Now, we, a lot of our recipes use nuts, and that has potentially linoleic acid-rich polyunsaturates, the omega-6 fraction. So we do have this in our diet, but when people – when we have – blood work done to test the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Most people following this program are somewhere around 2 to 1, 3 to 1, 4 to 1. Now, everybody that I take care of also supplements uh, omega-3 fatty acids from fish oil. So that changed the conversation a little bit too. I think that that's wonderful advice. And the whole try to have less of is so much different than be perfect over the years for me of, of you know, first yo-yo dieting even when I was a teenager and, and finally just being lean and stable, I found that seeking perfection in daily practice is psychologically destructive, but knowing the direction you'd like to change your decisions is really helpful, and you hit it on the head. You know, less polyunsaturated is ideal there, and so your advice makes great sense from a practical perspective to me. Let's talk a little bit more and, and shift gears towards the end of the interview here. Uh, we wanted to talk mostly about wheat belly, but what about a heart scan and track your plaque? Can you give us an overview of how you thought of heart scan and how track your plaque lets people prevent heart disease? Well, one of the things we all, this is now speaking day from the perspective of heart disease, that is coronary heart disease, heart attacks, atherosclerosis, angina, bypass surgery, stents, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, the world relies on, one, the appearance of symptoms, chest pain, can't breathe, heart attack, death, and cholesterol testing. Well, that's a very, very simple-minded way to approach this disease. I think a better paradigm would be to say, let's measure the disease itself. Let's measure atherosclerotic plaque. Because if you don't have plaque, you have virtually zero risk for heart attack and heart disease. If you have plaque, the more you have, the higher your risk for heart attack, heart disease. Uh, and deterioration of symptoms. So all a heart scan is, a CT heart scan that is, is a means of quantifying plaque. Now it's an indirect quantification because we're not actually measuring the total plaque, we're measuring the calcium content of plaque because it's a very simple relationship of calcium to plaque. And that is 20% of all plaque volume is comprised of calcium. So if I have, let's say, two cubic millimeters of calcium, I have 10 cubic millimeters of total atherosclerotic plaque. And that's whether you're young, old, female, male, etc. So it serves as an index or a dipstick for the amount of plaque you have. And by the way, once you have plaque, it grows at a horrifying rate. It can grow at 30% per year if you don't take action to stop it. So what I do in our preventive program, that is the Track Your Plaque program, we, one, measure plaque. If you have no plaque, you have virtually no risk. I'm not too worried about you. You still want to engage in some preventive practices, but you don't have to go crazy over it. What if you have a lot of plaque? People are often scared that it could mean they need bypass or three stents. What it usually means is you need to engage in a more powerful prevention program, and then you can track that growth or the reduction 
reversal of plaque by doing another heart scan down the road. Now, second is identify all the causes of plaque. So if I have, let's say, a heart scan score, that's how that's reported, of, let's say, 300, and I have a fair quantity, a moderate quantity of plaque, and I know it's going to grow 30% per year unless I take action, I then take the steps necessary to identify the causes. And these are not revealed by cholesterol testing, as you know. Cholesterol testing is this simple-minded surface a set of markers. We do other things. We look for such things as small LDL in lipoprotein testing. We look for lipoprotein A. We look for blood sugar phenomena because glycation leads to bad plaque behavior. We look for your vitamin D level, your 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. We look at your thyroid status. We supplement iodine, and we look at your omega-3 fatty acid status. So the program boils down to, one, quantify plaque, and if you have it, identify the causes and then correct those causes. Doing this, we see virtually no heart attacks. We see virtually no appearance of symptoms. So my practice, my office practice, is a high-risk practice. These are people who've had bypass before, or maybe I meet them after their third stent, or they have a very high heart scan score. I show them how their plaque was started, and then what steps to take to stop it, and Dave, we see virtually no heart attacks. This past holiday season, by the way, we had several heart attacks or people who developed unstable symptoms, all of them were people not following the diet. For instance, there was a priest who's a very wonderful person, but he, he did not have the heart to tell his parishioners that he could not eat the pies, cookies, and cakes, and cupcakes they brought him every day. He had a heart attack. Those are the people now having heart attacks, the people who cannot follow this diet for one reason or another, but the people who follow this diet and then do some other things like supplement vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, and correct thyroid, have no heart attacks. It is wonderful to hear you sort of talk about it in such clear and plain terms. I'd like to thank you personally sort of on the air. My father had a heart attack about, I think, eight years ago, ended up with even a cardiac surgery afterwards. And he wasn't following the bulletproof type of diet at all or um, any of the recommendations that you've got there. And your book and the level of knowledge and the quantitative way you track this problem rather than sort of the belief system-based approach <laughs> to health, where yeah. looking, at, <laughs> looking at numbers and saying what works and what doesn't, that I would say was highly inspirational for him as he was recovering and sort of feeling a little bit overwhelmed, all this bad advice, all these different things, different people said different things. But your work really does stand out because you have a quantitative approach and you measure progress in a way that many people don't. And so I'd, I'd like to thank you just for inspiring him to be empowered and to know that he could actually stick around after his heart attack. And he did, and he's healthy. Well, thank you, Dave. You know, the incredible thing here is this is not that tough. But it does not trickle down always to the person who's had a heart attack, had bypassed, uh, because it doesn't make money. Prevention of disease, as you know, is cheap. It's easy. So if you know, treating cholesterol is a $27 billion uh, annual proposition, bypass surgery generates anywhere between $100,000 and $200,000 for the hospital. So these things pay richly. The problem is what you and I do. That is, prevent heart disease, put a stop to it, erase it from the map, doesn't make money. It might cost a few dollars. Your vitamin D supplementation, for instance, might cost you, gee, what, $2 a month? <laughs> <laughs> so these are cheap. 
And uh, so that means there's no profit motive, there's no incentive to broadcast these things. This is why uh, I yell and scream and talk to nice people like you so I can get this message out and you want to get your message out because these are not revenue-producing activities. So we've got to generate the grassroots conversations that propagate the message. Thank you for your time and attention on this. It is important. The whole Bulletproof Executive blog, I think, is very in alignment with your principles. And it's a labor of love for me. I work in high-tech internet security as a senior executive. So this is what I do to help people and what you're doing to help people. And it isn't that hard, truly. We usually close down each show with a question. And the whole idea of the Bulletproof blog is around resilience and around being just more capable you know, psychologically and, and physically and, and just being healthier and, and just really having the energy you want to live your life. From that perspective, what are the three most important things that you can think of in all of the domains that you follow in your practice and in your life, the three things that people should pay most attention to if they want to perform better? Perform better in health? in any domain in their life, whatever the things are that matter the most. As we all know, having healthy, supportive relationships is very, very important. I'm guilty, perhaps, of being a bit single-minded, but elimination of wheat. Where I sit, Dave, the, the transformations in health, appearance, the way you feel, mood, are so dramatic and so incredible for so many people that I don't think it's possible to have perfect health with inclusion of wheat. That thing has to go if you want perfect health. And as silly as it sounds, I'm a big believer in vitamin D supplementation. An executive like you probably sits in an office much of the day. I know I'm in my office all day long. It could be an 85 degree sunny August day. I'm inside. When I go outside, I wear clothes and I'm over 40. I know when you're over 40, you fail to activate vitamin D in the skin for the most part. So supplementing vitamin D is only second in my mind in nutritional practices to elimination of wheat. If we did those three things, have healthy relationships, eliminate wheat, supplement vitamin D, I think we transform a nation. I think we improve health to such an incredible degree. We would slash costs. We would make people happy. It's cheap. It's easy. But it is so counter to prevailing wisdom. What a powerful list. Do you mind if I ask how much vitamin D you typically recommend for your patients? Now, I'm in Wisconsin, so uh, that has to be factored in to some degree. It's, it's somewhat reliant on where you are. In other words, if you were in uh, Miami, your need might be somewhat less. But most adults require 6,000 units per day of an oil-based preparation because the oil-based preparations are more assuredly absorbed. My personal dose is 8,000 units per day to generate. What I do is I try to achieve a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level of 60 to 70 nanograms. So most adults require 6,000 units. Someone uh, younger, like Army, might require only 4,000 units. Or slender people require less. Heavier people require more. There's also wide genetic variation. So the range I've seen to achieve that target level is anywhere from none, which is rare, by the way, to 25,000 units per day of D3 gel caps. But the average person is somewhere around the 6,000 unit range. Great advice again. My number is 16,000 a day based on just titrating blood results to, to target the 70 to 90 range. So it does vary substantially. I wish we had more time to go into vitamin D. That's also a big part on the blog. We're looking for those things that are high impact and low cost or low effort. But you mentioned something there that I think is really important and something I would agree with. Your number one choice there was healthy, supportive relationships. But that is so synergistic with your second piece of advice there, illuminating wheat. I've found that if I eat wheat, 
the day after I eat wheat, I'm generally okay. The day after that comes the brain fog and I get cranky and I am less kind to my family. I'm short and impatient with my kids and with my wife. And if you eliminate wheat, your relationships will improve, which is an amazing sort of, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence in your recommendations, but it's an amazing impact of gluten. Do you see that in your own life or in your patients? Absolutely. Dave, I cringe to remember how I used to be, crabby and nasty. It was all because of (laughs) consumption of this thing. And I see this play out in many, many people. I see marriages improve. I see school performance improve. I see athletic performance improve. So you're, you're absolutely right. This thing has a profound effect on thought, emotions, and people who remove it are far happier. No question about it. Dr. Davis, thank you so much for all this wonderful information. Can you let our readers know the URLs they should go to and the name of your book and where they can find you? Well, a lot of these conversations take place on my blog, which is wheatbellyblog.com, which is the blog that accompanies the book, Wheat Belly. Everything derives from that blog. You can always, whenever you want to find out what's going on in this conversation, anyone can just go to that blog. The Facebook page for Wheat Belly is attached to that blog also. So all my world circles around this blog, including the recipes. If people want recipes to do these kinds of things, they're all going to be on this blog. Wonderful. Dr. Davis, thanks again. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure. And thank you, Army. Thank you, Dr. Davis. It was a pleasure talking to you. Now we'll start with Upgraded Self Radio listener Q&A. First question is from Zingbo. Is there any downside to sautéing vegetables in butter instead of melting the butter on them? Yes, there is. And the reason for that is that butter does have some polyunsaturate and some monounsaturates and some protein in it. And cooking all of that isn't particularly good for the fat. And it does increase the breakdown of the fat, not nearly as much as it would if you were using, say, canola oil or olive oil. But still, ideally, you should use a little bit of water with your veggies, cook them sort of Chinese style where you add water and then you add oil towards the end or even at the end, you still get the sautéed flavor. You get all the benefits of sautéing. You just have fresher, less oxidized, and less damaged fat on it. The next question is from Steve. I find reduced glutathione at my local health food store. One type is called L-glutathione. Is that close enough? And what is the recommended dosage? It turns out that L-glutathione is not a very useful supplement. Because glutathione is digested in the stomach, it just gets broken down into cysteine and some other amino acids, and you end up with a very expensive supplement that doesn't do very much at all. To get around this, you could take glutathione intravenously, which is what we used to do, and in fact, I've done many times, and what is still offered around the world. What I prefer doing and what is my default and my standard way of treating myself and even my family with a good dose of glutathione is to take the liposomal form of glutathione that we carry on UpgradedSelf.com. The liposomal form does not get digested in the gut. It's wrapped in spheres of fat that your body really likes. So your body allows those spheres of fat through the gut wall. And when that happens, the glutathione gets absorbed directly into the blood without any digestion of it happening. That's pretty important. In terms of recommended dosage, it depends on 
you. How much oxidative stress are you under? How many toxins are you exposed to? Are you drinking alcohol? What's the quality of your diet? What's the quality of your sleep? You know, do you sleep on airplanes all the time? So in general, the more toxic your environment or the sicker you are or the more you're abusing your body, the more you should take. But recommended dosage varies dramatically. With the liposomal product, we usually say about a teaspoon a day. Next question comes from Ron. He says, can the caffeine in energy drinks contain toxins, and if so, is it high? Also, they say the ingredients in the five-hour energy drink are safe. Would love to know your insight on it. Army, give it a shot. As far as caffeine having toxins in it, I would actually say it's not very likely. The caffeine used in most energy products is USP-certified pharmaceutical-grade powdered caffeine, which isn't likely to have very many toxins. I mean, there's always a chance, I guess, something could be in it, but I doubt it. And in terms of the five-hour energy drinks, those things you see on TV all the time, well, you have to look at the ingredients. So what it contains is niacin, vitamin B6, folic acid, vitamin B12, sodium, taurine, glucuronic acid, malic acid, N-acetyl-L-tyrosine, L-phenylalanine, caffeine, acetocytocholine, water and artificial flavors, sucralose, potassium sorbate, sodium benzoate, EDTA. Those last three are just preservatives. The two that stand out are folic acid, which can cause some problems. That's been linked to cancer, and it might have pretty different effects than folate, which is the type of B vitamin your body actually uses. Folic acid is a synthetic form. Sucralose might also be a problem. This is also known as Splenda. There is one study by Duke University showing that it could kill off beneficial bacteria in the gut of rats, but there were some really bad problems with the statistical analysis of that study. They also had some other problems, and it has not yet to be replicated at all, and it has yet to be replicated in humans. And that's also very low on the ingredients list, so it's kind of an overhyped caffeine drink with little artificial sweetening. The biggest problem I see is the fact that it costs $3 for each little bottle, which is basically daylight robbery. You're much better off drinking tea or coffee. What do you think, Dave? Well, I'd be a little concerned about the sodium benzoate. It's one of those preservatives that isn't that good for us. There's a guy from the University of Sheffield in England who has done some research that says that sodium benzoate by itself can actually inactivate parts of DNA in your mitochondria. That would be a problem because mitochondria are basically the power plants in your cells. And we also know that if you take vitamin C with sodium benzoate, it forms benzene, which is definitely a known carcinogen. So you're not really doing yourself a favor by drinking this stuff. I also don't use sucralose and I don't recommend sucralose because the studies on it that were done before release were very small, very short timelines. And they made the claim that it's excreted unchanged from the body. But subsequent studies that I came across said that about 43% of this stuff stays in the body somewhere. It's not excreted. So you'd expect if you ate a pound of it, a pound should come out, but a pound doesn't come out. And they haven't exactly figured out where it goes. You make sucralose by exposing a sugar molecule to massive amounts of chlorine, and it's chemically somewhat close to what like a PCB would look like. So I'm not saying that it's a super bad thing. There's less evidence that it's bad than, say, NutraSweet, but for God's sake, like if you want to be bulletproof, there's zero benefit to putting this stuff in your body, and there's real risk. Why would you do it? It is definitely less studied than a lot of the other sweeteners, so there is more risk. The next question is from Brian. I'm hoping to get off Vyvanse completely, which I take for my ADHD, 
but it's helping a lot at work. Do you think Bulletproof Coffee could help improve my symptoms of ADD and help me get off Vyvanse? You know, this is definitely an FDA kind of question. We're talking about coffee, which is a food, versus a regulated drug. So rather than saying that it'll help you get off the drug or not, because honestly, that's probably a dangerous place to go. What I will do, though, is tell you some feedback I've heard from people who have ADD or ADD-like symptoms who've tried Bulletproof Coffee, Um, people that I coached or people who've just left comments on Twitter and on the blog. And the short answer is that people with ADD, when they have that dose of short-chain fatty acids, particularly uh, butyrate from butter that comes in Bulletproof Coffee in the morning, tend to do much better because butyrate affects brain inflammation. So I've had more than a few people, even a narcoleptic, say, oh my God, I got my life back. Like I drink this stuff in the morning and I feel good all morning and I get my work done and I feel focused and I feel good. Now that's not to say that these people said whether or not they went off their existing meds or even if they were on them before, but they all felt like it certainly helped them with focus. And as someone who may tend in that direction myself, especially historically, given that I had symptoms of Asperger's, which certainly includes ADHD for many Asperger's people, I definitely noticed that good quality coffee has a very positive effect on cognition. In fact, we just got institutional review board approval to do a study on the cognitive effects of upgraded coffee that's going to be conducted in conjunction with a major California university. I'll be announcing that in more detail shortly. So basically, I'm not going to put coffee up against medically prescribed ADD drugs, But I am going to say if you have ADD and you get low-toxin, good-quality coffee, you're probably going to have a really good high-performance day. The next question is from Andy. Do you know of any validated study to support grounding? Plus, aren't we grounding ourselves every time we touch something that's earthed, like a metal post in the street waiting for a bus? I'm open to walking around my local park barefoot, but I don't know how to rule out the placebo effect without some equipment to measure charge. Also, I did my regular one-hour performance cycling test today at the gym, but was fueled by MCT oil. I added more and had longer-lasting energy. I get a stitch, though it almost never happens to me. P.S. My wife banned me from putting chunks of butter in my coffee. Help me convince her it's safe. That's a bunch of questions here. First thing, validated study. I don't know. There's many different levels of validation, and... The fact that there is or isn't a validated study doesn't change whether something is true. Every single new discovery on Earth went through a period where there was no validated research about it, yet it was still true. So we focused at the Bulletproof Executive both on understanding the validated studies, but also on the things that are likely true based on biohacking techniques, self-experimentation, quantified self, and basically being trained observers of ourselves and of our environment. So that said, the placebo effect is always there if you are looking at your own experience of the way something works. So let's talk about studies. There is a study on grounding published in the Journal of Alternative Medicine that showed a reduction in nighttime cortisol and improved sleep with grounding. That matches lots of anecdotal experiences with grounding. My own experience was pretty dramatic. When I first did some sort of unintentional double-blind studies, I was experimenting when I flew to Cambridge, England every month for about a year and a half. I was experimenting with 
landing and then exercising to raise my body temperature because jet lag was really, really affecting me back then. So one day, maybe the only day that year, it happened to be sunny in England. And I did yoga in the park to raise my body temperature after I landed. And I had no jet lag. I said, oh, this exercise works great. Next time it's raining, I do yoga in my hotel room and I was jet lagged like normal. And after a while, I noticed if I did it outdoors, it really made a difference. So maybe it's the sunlight. It must be the sunlight. I don't think it was the sunlight because since then I've found, and last year I flew a hundred times, it traveled internationally. I will not travel without my grounding sheet because the difference is night and day for jet lag. My jet lag is essentially gone when I'm grounded. And you might say there's no study that says that, but I spent enough time and enough different techniques that if placebo was going to fix my jet lag, I would have fixed it a long time ago. And this is a very real effect. I actually have no question about this. I assume everyone will know it at some point. You are not grounding yourself every time you touch something that's earthed. If that was the case, you should be able to take your battery, let's say, and touch it to an outlet, and your battery would instantly charge. It actually takes time for a charge to accumulate or to drain. So yes, you can get rid of a surface charge, but if you have a charge inside you, it's not quite like that. You can measure, and in fact, if you read the book on earthing by Cliff, I forget his last name, he actually shows lots of times how he used a sensitive electric meter to look at the built-up charge accumulated on people, and he graphs it out over time throughout the day, and it does build up over time. So I think that it's pretty easy to measure, to be perfectly honest. So I think this is a simple thing to do. You can test it for yourself and see how you feel. In terms of walking around barefoot in local park, you could do it. I think a better test is to sleep grounded. That gives you a long period of uninterrupted things. When you wake up, you probably have less pain in your body. Like it's pretty cool. In terms of using MCT for longer lasting athletic energy, dude, totally. It just works. It's real. If you got a stitch, I don't know where it was in your body, but you might've had too much MCT too fast by itself. That can cause a little bit of cramping. It doesn't once you get used to it though. In terms of your wife banning you from putting chunks of butter in your coffee, well, if she's not going to believe that it's safe, I would suggest putting butter in her food for a while when she's not looking and let her tell you how wonderful the food is, how much she likes it, and then get her blood tests. And when her blood tests look good, you can you know, disclose the fact that you've been sneaking butter into almost everything she ate, and that's why she's been so happy. You could also send her to any of our blog posts about saturated fat and butter. We have tons and tons of research on the site. There's simply no compelling evidence that says that butter is an unsafe fat compared to the other stuff that they push as being healthy. You should also tell her to listen to our podcast we did with Chris Masterjohn. It's time for the biohacker report, where we're going to bring you some of the latest research. The first study here comes out of University College in London, again from the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine. We had something from that same journal in the last show. This study was called Positive Psychological Well-Being and Mortality, a Quantitative Review of Prospective Observational Studies. Now, you've got to hand it to the Brits. They really know how to write a title that's catching and compelling and emotionally interesting, except this one was none of those. It wasn't even dressed in plaid. However, this is a cool study because they looked at how positive well-being was associated with mortality. They took a look at 70 different studies 35 looked at mortality in healthy populations. 35 looked at mortality in diseased populations. Now, there were some obvious problems with this research, and this is an observational study. Nonetheless, it found very clear associations between positive feelings of well-being and resilience to mortality. 
given that there are really no negative side effects of feeling happy, it's pretty safe to say that you'll probably be a lot healthier if you do that. Your best bet there is to learn some things that are very bulletproof and kind of hard to quantify. Things like forgiveness and things like how to be happy, how to let go, and things that are actually, especially in America, associated with actually being weak. Well, it turns out that being happy makes you more bulletproof, not weaker. And if you cultivate a practice of being happy and letting go of things, you'll basically kick a lot more ass than someone who walks around with a chip on his shoulder all the time. The next study we're going to cover is called Ingesting a Pre-Workout Supplement Containing Caffeine, B Vitamins, Amino Acids, Creatine, and Beta Alanine Before Exercise Delays Fatigue While Improving Reaction Time and Muscular Endurance. This was published in the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism, and it was conducted at the University of Oklahoma. They wanted to see how the assault supplement affected upper and lower muscular endurance, aerobic and anaerobic capacity, and reaction time to different tests. They used 12 recreationally trained male athletes aged 22 to 35 years. They randomized them into two groups, a supplement and a placebo group. Each person got to be their own control, so it was a crossover study. The three-week study tested determination of aerobic capacity, or VO2 max, one rep maximum for the bench press and leg press, and some reaction times. They also tested intermittent critical velocity familiarization, which is just another one of those tests. The subjects taking the supplement did better on all markers, but it wasn't by a whole lot. It had several strengths, one that it's a crossover study, there was detailed testing, and it was pretty relevant. The limitations were that it was hard to tell which ingredient had the beneficial effect, there was no nutritional control over their regular diet, they had different previous training modalities, so there were trained and untrained athletes, and there were a few others. The takeaway is that it may help, but you could probably get these ingredients a lot cheaper if you bought them by themselves. Things like creatine are dirt cheap. Our final biohacker report of the day is from the Journal of Biochemical Pharmacology. The research was completed by the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Albany, New York. I really like this one because it's called Enhancement of Butyrate-Induced Differentiation of HT29 Human Colon Carcinoma Cells by 125-dihydrooxyvitamin D3. When we translate that from sort of biohacker speak into what I would call an appropriate title for digestion is if you take butyric acid or butyrate with vitamin D3, good things happen in the gut. Here's what happens. There's already established research that vitamin D and butyrate help mitigate some of the negative effects of colon cancer. What the study found was that combining vitamin D and butyrate actually changed the differentiation of the cancer cells themselves. When they put these things together in a test tube with cancer cells, it turned the cancer cells into a more benign, less harmful form of cancer. Now, it might be interesting to note that butyrate and vitamin D are found in grass-fed butter. Not a lot of vitamin D, though. You're better off to supplement with it and to make sure that you get enough sun. It also turns out that in terms of food, cultured grass-fed butter or even just cultured butter that's not grass-fed are your best sources of butyrate from the diet. Also, if you're lucky and things are working right, you can make butyrate in your gut if the right bacteria grow there, but not everyone does that. So if you want to calm the inflammation in your gut and you want to cause gut healing and you want to calm brain inflammation, 
eating butter, which is 4% for cow butter and 5% for goat butter, butyric acid, this is a pretty cool study. They're actually turning cancer cells into more benign cancer cells just by using butyric acid. You can find links to everything we talked about in our show notes, which we post at bulletproofexec.com. As always, there will be a full transcript of everything we talked about, including our interview with Dr. Davis. We really appreciate it when you take the time to leave a positive ranking on iTunes so people can find our podcast. Or if you just stop on by the blog, ask us some questions, leave us some comments, let us know how we're doing. Army, thanks. Take care. See you later, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.